Chapter 10 of A Confession by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Almer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I understood this, but it made matters no better for me. I was now ready to accept any faith, if only it did not demand of me a direct denial of reason, which would have been a falsehood. And I studied Buddhism and Mohammedanism from books, and most of all I studied Christianity, both from books and from the people around me. Naturally, I first of all turned to the orthodox of my circle, to the people who were learned, to church theologians, monks, to theologians of the newest shade, and even to evangelicals who profess salvation by belief in the redemption. And I seized on these believers and questioned them as to their beliefs and their understanding of the meaning of life. But though I made all possible concessions and avoided all disputes, I could not accept the faith of these people. I saw that what they gave out as their faith did not explain the meaning of life but obscured it, and that they themselves affirmed their belief not to answer the question of life which brought me to faith, but for some other aims alien to me. I remember the painful feeling of fear of being thrown back into my former state of despair after the hope I had often and often experienced in my intercourse with these people. The more fully they explained to me their doctrines, the more clearly did I perceive their error and realize that my hope of finding in their belief an explanation of the meaning of life was vain. It was not that in their doctrines they mixed many unnecessary and unreasonable things with Christian truths that had always been near to me. That was not what repelled me. I was repelled by the fact that these people's lives were like my own, with only this difference, that such a life did not correspond to the principles they expounded in their teachings. I clearly felt that they deceived themselves and that they, like myself, found no other meaning in life than to live while life lasts, taking all one's hands can seize. I saw this because if they had had a meaning which destroyed the fear of loss, suffering, and death, they would not have feared these things. But they, these believers of our circle, just like myself, lived in sufficiency and superfluity, trying to increase to preserve them, feared privations, suffering, and death, just like myself and all of us non-believers, lived to satisfy their desires, and lived just as badly, if not worse, than the unbelievers. No arguments could convince me of the truth of their faith. Only deeds which showed that they saw a meaning in life making what was so dreadful to me, poverty, sickness, and death, not dreadful to them, could convince me and such deeds I did not see among various believers of our circle. On the contrary, I saw such deeds done by the people of our circle who were the most unbelieving, but never by those so-called believers. And I understood that the belief of these people was not the faith I sought, and that their faith is not a real faith, but an Epicurean consolation in life. I understood that that faith may serve, if not for a consolation, then at least as some distraction for a repentant Solomon upon his deathbed, but it cannot serve for the great majority of mankind, who are called out not to amuse themselves while consuming the labor of others, but to create life. For all humanity to be able to live and continue to live attributing a meaning to life, they, those millards, must have a different, real knowledge of faith. Indeed, it was not the fact that we, with Solomon and Schopenhauer, did not kill ourselves that convinced me of the existence of faith, but the fact that those millards of people have lived and are living, and have bored Solomon and us on the current of their lives. And I began to draw nearer to those believers among the poor, simple, unlettered folk, pilgrims, monks, sectarians, and peasants. The faith of these common people was the same Christian faith as was professed by the pseudo-believers of our circle. Among them, too, I found a great deal of superstition mixed with the Christian truths, but the difference was that the superstitions of the believers of our circle were quite unnecessary to them and were not in conformity with their lives, being merely a kind of Epicurean diversion but the superstitions of the believers among the laboring masses conformed so with their lives that it was impossible to imagine them to oneself without these superstitions, which were a necessary condition of their life. The whole life of the believers in our circle was a contradiction of their faith, but the whole life of the working folk believers was a confirmation of the meaning of life which their faith gave them. 
and I began to look into the meaning of life and faith to these people, and the more I considered it, the more I became convinced that they have a real faith which is necessary to them and alone gives their life a meaning and makes it possible for them to live. In contrast with what I had seen in our circle, where the whole of life is passed in idleness, amusements, and dissatisfaction, I saw that the whole of the life of these people was passed in heavy labor, and that they were content with life. In contradistinction to the way in which people of our circle oppose faith and complain of it on account of deprivations and sufferings, these people accepted illness and sorrow without any perplexity or opposition, and with a quiet, firm conviction that all is good. In contradistinction to us, who the wiser we are, the less we understand the meaning of life and see some evil irony in the fact that we suffer and die, these folks live and suffer, and they approach death and suffering with tranquility, and in the most cases, gladly. In contrast to the fact that a tranquil death, a death without horror and despair, is a very rare exception in our circle, a troubled, rebellious, and unhappy death is the rarest exception among the people. And such people, lacking all that for us and for Solomon is the only good of life, and yet experiencing the greatest happiness, are in a great multitude. I looked more widely around me. I considered the life of the enormous mass of people in the past and the present. And of such people, understanding the meaning of life and able to live and to die, I saw it not two or three or tens, but hundreds, thousands, and millions, and they all endlessly different in their manners, minds, education, and position, as they were all alike, in complete contrast to my ignorance, knew the meaning of life and death, labored quietly, endured deprivations and sufferings, and lived and died seeing therein not vanity, but good. And I learned to love these people. The more I came to know their life, the life of those who are living and of those who are dead by whom I have read and heard, the more I loved them and the easier it became for me to live. So I went on for about two years, and a change took place in me which had long been preparing and the promise of which had always been in me. It came about that the life of our circle, the rich and learned, not merely became distasteful to me, but lost all meaning in my eyes. All our actions, discussions, science, and art presented itself to me in a new light. I understood that it is all merely self-indulgence, and that to find a meaning in it is impossible, while the life of the whole laboring people, the whole of mankind who produce life, appeared to me in its true significance. I understood that that is life itself, and that the meaning given to that life is true, and I accepted it. End of chapter 10